morning, everyone. Thank you for gathering together to support each other in practice. This weekend, we did a mindful eating retreat. A number of you have done that retreat before. And we had um, everybody except one person who was new to the mindful eating retreat. And um, that made it very, very interesting. Nobody was jaded or in any retrospect. So everything was a surprise. In the mindful eating retreat, we begin to look at desire. I, I realized that in, in the first few years of working with mindful eating, we weren't really addressing the issue of desire. Desire is a fundamental issue in our life. And we have the four great bodhisattva vows Second, second of which is desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. That's a very peculiar, all the vows are peculiar, and they're peculiar. That they're peculiar is wonderful because it makes us ponder them, we're curious about them. So desires are inexhaustible. we want to end all desires? Are there any desires that are that are useful, potentially useful or helpful? What do you think? Yes? The desire to be free from desires, yes. <laughs> Good. Overarching desire to be free from desires. Sexual desire to reproduce. So if we didn't have sexual desire, we would have no us, right, sitting here, none of us. And no Buddha, and no Jesus, and no Moses, and no Muhammad, and so on. So, do we want to end sexual desire? We have to really look at that. In the study of the precepts, we look at that. What do we do with that? It's basically an energy, and it can take energy can take many different forms. So, if it if it takes the form of sexual energy, how do we use it well? If it takes other forms, how do we use it well? Any other desires that might be necessary for us to go on? Desire to care for, care for children, right? Otherwise, we neglect our children or abuse our children and they all die. Desire to eat, right? If we don't have a desire to eat, then this whole enterprise of giving enlightenment comes to a screeching halt because human beings come to a screeching halt. So the desire to eat, we have to say that's a health, basically a healthy desire, right? That we find pleasure in food and we desire to eat. This even and this is fuel. So we had it was very interesting in this workshop. We had a full range from people who really don't find food very interesting or pleasant, but know that it's useful to keep the body alive and the mind fresh. So eat because it's fat. And it proves that we never know another's experience because we, we who have great desire for food, maybe over-exaggerated desire for food and overusing food to meet other desires, can't imagine what it would be like to not have any desire for food. How would you, how would you go on doing that if you didn't have that amazing pleasure? But then we realize, well, maybe if there were a little less pleasure, then it might help me. You know, so how much desire is, is helpful? But also that range of just desire for food expressed in, in a room of 30 people makes us realize, wow, 
I thought my experience was as big a thing as everybody in the whole world. You know how we have that idea that how we experience things, how society really experiences things, and we discover, no, not at all, because you can be dramatically different in how we experience things. In fact, we have no idea how someone talks taste salad, or taste sugar, or taste cilantro, or broccoli, or lettuce, or anything. We have no clue. We have some descriptive words they can tell us, but we really don't know what they're actually thinking. So desire for, for eating, desire to reproduce, healthy desires, desire to nurture and take care of younger people or people who need more care because they're disabled or for whatever reason need more care or healthy. What else? Yes. Desire for death. For death, oh death, for death, but who could consider desire for death? If we don't die, then there's no room left on the planet and the whole human endeavor comes to a screeching end <laughs> very quickly too because there's no room for anybody. You know, you consider if nobody died, how soon would you be vastly overpopulated and un unable to feed ourselves? It happens very quickly, maybe in like one generation. We wouldn't die from starvation? No, we wouldn't. <laughs> so desire for depth, to go, go deeper and look deeper at the fundamental spiritual Desire for depth is related to that. It looks deeply into the fundamental problem of why, why do we suffer? Why can't we just be content with that life and live with ease, especially in wealthy countries, in present circumstances? Why can't we just be at ease? Other, other important and simple desires, simple as eating, what else? Comfort, mm -hmm. yeah, so we don't harm ourselves. Desire to know, which is related to, to the desire for death. How about the desire to drink? Kind of important, right? We can do without food for much longer than we can do without liquid, so the desire to drink is important. How about the desire to sleep? Rather important. Warmth to keep ourselves warm. So basic protective needs, basic needs for staying alive. We need those. We need those. Those are healthy desires. So happiness. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is you, if you look at some of these, can people get along in life without Kriya? Can people get along in life without wanting to go deeper into life? They do it all the time. They're very common, right? They just live life and come back, be born, sleep, wriggle, decorate. Put energy in talk, distribute energy out to bottom, and die. Well, it happens all the time. So some of these are luxuries, actually, but some of them are necessities, like sleep, um, shelter, warmth and shelter, very healthy. Drinking, eating, and so on. Mm, yeah, so just for that. Maslow has this hierarchy of needs at the, at the bottom are the basic needs. So we need, we need if, if, we, if we lose our appetite, we're not going to last long unless somebody feeds us. If we lose our desire to drink or sleep, we're not going to last long unless somebody takes care of those needs. 
So there's a whole hierarchy of community builders out there. But, so what do you think is your, what are your strongest examples in terms of change actions? What, what is, what's the one that's most compelling? To live and in, in order to live to do the other things that are necessary for living, right? So we have this fundamental drive to live. But even, that's not exactly true of everybody because People have suicidal thoughts and think of ending their lives, right? And that becomes a desire. That becomes something compelling. And then some of our behaviors are, are aimed at suicide, <laughs> whether we acknowledge them or not, but will take us in that direction. And they're very compelling. Desire to use methamphetamine or cocaine or heroin could lead to our death easily, but that desire overwhelms the desire to just People who come to mind for eating usually realize that the desire to eat is a pretty powerful desire and maybe occupies a lot of the mind space during the day. And then, of course, sexual desire. I mean, the current difficulty with pornography, with online pornography, and sexual harassment and child sexual abuse and so on, we know that sexual desire can really get so from the Buddhist point of view, those two desires are the most powerful, the desire to eat and drink and sexual desire, because they're the most fundamental in terms of continuing our existence. So they have to be powerful. So we need to look at the word desire, because when we say desires are inexhaustible, I've asked the Kundam, we can often object to the, to the word desire. He thinks clinging is a better description of what, what the problem is. So desire for food is healthy, but when we begin clinging to food and asking food to do things that it can't do for us, when we have one ice cream cone and we think, boy, that was delicious, and the mind grabs on and thinks, I'd be even happier if I had a second one. That's when the suffering begins with, with the clinging, with the attachment or the aversion. Oh, no. Look at that. I broke my diet by eating an ice cream cone. Shame on me. I'm hopeless. I just give up my diet and give up all hope of, of having any, coming into any balance with food. So it's really attachment, unhealthy attachment and unhealthy aversion that's the problem, not the basic desire. At least the basic desires that help us stay alive. But desire and aversion over something as simple as food or sexual desire can really take over and take over our whole mind space and take over our lives. And that's when we know, oh, there's, there's a problem here. This is taking up too, of my, too much of my life energy. Um, I often tell the story of a woman who came to the Mind Creating Workshop in Los Angeles and very, very lovely woman. She's in the entertainment industry. Not a movie star, but had the potential in terms of her looks and her bearing. Um, she looked like a mix between Natalie Portman and Julia Roberts. She's a very, very lovely, regularly young woman. And uh, on the second day of the workshop, she, she just suddenly cried out and said, this is really troubling. This is really scary. You have no idea. There isn't a waking moment in my life when I don't think about food and my body. 
if I give that up, who will I be? And she, she was she was really scared. Who will I be? Suddenly you face emptiness. Right? If you give up something that has become addictive or become the, dri the driver for your life, the engine for your life, if you give that up, then who will you be? And that's a, actually a very deep spiritual question. If you give up the project of self, self-being, so her dilemma was food and body image, is only one example of our many attachments, our many um, preoccupations that have to do with, with ourselves. And if we give that up, if we give up the whole selfing project, then what happens? What will we do with that empty space and all that time and all that energy when it's freed up? Right? We could do a lot. But changing how we've been using our life energies is not easy. It's not easy. It takes a lot, a lot of determination to make even a small change. And we talk about this in Mind Karuti. To make even a small change in something that's become an ingrained habit is sometimes easy. In how do we talk about driving wedges in someplace? Someplace. So if the compulsion is go to the go to the refrigerator, get an entire gallon of ice cream and eat the whole thing, then where can we drive wedges in? Well, maybe you recognize the compulsion and you, and you create a little space there, like even two or three minutes, and you go outside and walk around the house and then come back and eat the ice cream. Or can you create a little space when you go to the refrigerator and look in the freezer and say, is there anything else in here that I could eat? Like maybe you've prepared frozen mangoes frozen strawberries or frozen bananas, and you make that change instead of the ice cream. Or maybe you don't buy the ice cream when you go to the store. Maybe you buy the little carton of ice cream, the little one-person or two-person size ice cream. That's what you do. One of those in, in the freezer. Or maybe you um, say, okay, I'm going to put down the ice cream, and I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to light a candle, and I'm going to say a prayer for myself and all the people who brought me this ice cream. And then you eat the ice cream. You know, any way to create a little pause, to disrupt the pattern, to disrupt the unhealthy pattern, and eventually we can catch hungry for it. So we have many, many choice points. We talk a lot about freedom and liberation in uh, Buddhist practice. People think, whoa, that, that, whoa, when I get enlightened, then I'll be free. You know, I'll just wait till that point, and then I will be totally free. But it's not that way. It's more like it's all these little choices that we insert choice. And choice means freedom, means liberation, means happiness. When we have those little choices about it. But it's up to us to make those choices. Right? I mean, the community sometimes does make changes and so forth. But it's up to us to find those points and, and be creative about them and explore them. Even if we, if we only delay something that's a cart down the rut behavior at the beginning for three minutes, that's just not good enough. And it begins to give us some freedom. I like the comparison between sexuality and, and eating. I didn't talk about this in the weekend, so I'll remind the guestees here. Um, but those two are our strongest desires. And if you think about sexuality, we actually have developed some control over our sexuality. For instance, if we're walking down the street and we 
look in the window of a, of a cafe and, or a bakery and we see somebody very attractive, we don't walk in and jump on them, right? Like, oh, I've got to have you right this minute. I mean, people, we consider people who do that somewhat deranged and then throw it away, right? So we have some control over sexual desire. We can feel it arise, but we don't act on it. But if we look in the bakery window and saw a chocolate croissant, that might be a different story, right? So we, that, that actually gives us hope that we know that in one area of life where there's very, very strong desire, we have been able to corral that desire and work with it in a reasonable way, most of us, right? That's the small idea. Well, there isn't in this country social pressure because we have made food generally available and made it fine to eat it any place, any time. But in other countries, that's not okay. In Japan, you cannot eat while you're walking. It's extremely, extremely rude. It's the equivalent of robbing your parents and maiming someone. People find it really revolting and uncouth, barbaric, that you would walk around eating. The only thing you're allowed to eat while you're walking is an ice cream cone, now, because they have them because it might melt. But everything else, including fast food, and they have fast food now, thank God, you, you need to sit down and eat it like a civilized person. Uh, or take it home and sit at, set a table and sit down and eat like a civilized person. So we had a friend who uh, actually was struggling in Gyokusho Crossing, went to Japan with another priest who was Japanese American. And uh, he treated them to dinner. And so after they after dinner they were walking around in the old part of Kyoto, and they got um, they brought him dessert this Japanese American priest, and the dessert were were these little balls of wheat rice different colors covered with a wheat frosting stick, so it's like their equivalent of a lollipop if you know people who like very old fashioned very sweet sweet in the, in the, in the sentimental sense dessert. So they're walking around eating their rice balls, and and yes, okay. So they're riding around, walking around, eating their rice balls, and they look around and what's where's Tom? What happened to Tom? I can just talk more loud. So they look around and they they've lost track of Tom. Where is Tom? And they find Tom up against the wall, his back turned to the street, the dark street, which has only a few people on it, eating his dessert. Because it is so rude to walk and eat. And he's because he's Japanese American, he has the Japanese conditioning of don't do that. However, in Japan, it is fine at night to turn your back on people, face a wall, and pee if you're a guy. So you can see there are lots of little cultural things woven, woven in here that's not considered at all grossly embarrassing no, for most women. So at first they thought, oh, he's peeing. We shouldn't look. No, <laughs> no it's actually he's eating while walking. Don't look. So... Sexuality and eating, the, kind of the, the, the embarrassment, the shame around aspects of both these desires, our difficulty controlling them at times, but knowing that we can control because we've, we've, we've got some measure of control over sexuality. 
And then the other common factors with, with sexuality and eating are that th they both involve interpenetration of beings. That we take another's body into ours or put our body into another person's body. That it's basically interpenetration with other beings, with the other beings of food, plants and animals, uh, and of course the beings living within us, or, or with another person in sexuality. And so we find that very pleasurable. There's, there's a lot of pleasure in that interpenetration, which we call eating or we call sexuality. So then you ponder, well, why is it so pleasurable? Why is it so fun? Yeah, it keeps us alive too, but what else? Well, you know, there is a kind of disgust factor in both. And it's actually dangerous. It's dangerous to interpenetrate your body or take other people's bodies into your body because there are germs involved. And, you know, now, we, now that HIV is, is known and, and risks of bodily fluids, and we're all using hand sanitizer, I can't say that out. Um, we know that interpenetration with other bodies, germs, food bearing potentially bearing germs, other people potentially bearing germs, there's a, there's a risk factor every time we allow ourselves to interpenetrate with another being. So there has to be strong enough desire to overcome the aversion or the ridiculous element. I mean, have you ever been involved in eating and think, this is ridiculous? I'm just giving her like a pat on the tummy, bom, 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 until it gets very tasty, which is a little bit disgusting. And then I swallow it down, and then I start the whole thing over again. So, you know, it pops into our mind, this is ridiculous, and sexuality has this ridiculous element because it's going to get all the people around the world who at this very moment are going, boing, 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 boing. As is a kind of candy. <laughs> so there's danger to it, there's silliness to it, there's disgust to it, exchanging bodily fluids and so on. So we have to have desire that's so strong that it'll overcome that. So there's the basis, I think, of our strength of our desire. And then the difficulties that come with the strength of those two desires. Now the difficulty with eating that doesn't apply to sexuality is you can live a very contented life without sexuality being an issue. So celibate people do it all the time. But you can't, you know, you have to preface this issue of desire always up in your face, so to speak, or in your mouth. So let's switch uh, looking at desire from food and sexuality to uh, what is the desire coming here today or this weekend? What are you longing for? Happiness? Mm -hmm. So looking for happiness in maybe not all the wrong places, but maybe a potentially right place to check it out. See if you can find happiness here. What else? Enlightenment. And what does that mean? What would enlightenment be like? What would be the qualities that you'd be hoping for? Aha, to know what it is because you've heard about it. You're curious. belong to something larger than yourself, to be part of something much bigger than just I, me, mine, and my little life project of decorating and eating and pooping and so on. Something that has maybe more potential to benefit you. 
to your children. Anybody else? Really here? What's your longing? What's your desire for meaning in your own home? Yes. That's where we get back to what you said earlier. Community and connection. So we have an essential loneliness, right? An essential loneliness because we are born as an individual, unique individual, and different from everybody else and unable to know anybody else's experience fully, whether it's broccoli or how they taste coffee or what they think about when they're medicated. So we can't know another person to the depth of their being, no matter how long we've known them. We can't know what's in their heart or what's in their mind. We can't even know ourselves very well. That's what we discover when we begin meditating. So there's a desire for community, for connection with other people, but also for connection with ourselves, right? Once we realize, wow, I don't even know myself. How can I know another person? Then there's a desire for connection with our is a fundamental spiritual desire to know what life is about, to know what death is about, to know our purpose on earth, to know our mind as well as we can and our heart as well as we can, and our body as well as we can, and to take care of them because nobody else can do that because they don't know what we need. We know what we need. And I asked Janet if she would say something repeat something that she said uh, in the workshop, in the wrap-up of the workshop, which is relevant. So the wisdom that comes from suffering and working with suffering, 
that we are the only person who knows what we need and can provide it, and then can learn how to provide it in healthy ways. Other people can support us on the journey. We've certainly had a lot of support right from in doing the work over the, over the years. <laughs> so we need community. We need other people who will be willing to hear our story, to hear our suffering, and help support us through, through our journey in ending our own suffering and then to the degree that we can end our own suffering, our ability to help other people. For the people who did the weekend, what was, if you look back at the weekend, what was the most satisfying element of the weekend? What brought you the most, the feeling of satisfaction? Besides the food. Food was great, yes, we'll accept that. Food was nice. But besides the food, what made you feel satisfied? The people. Sharing. Their experience. Slowing down? And what did slowing down enable to happen? To pay attention. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So to experience things through the tool of slowing down. And Anne, what was the most satisfying said that, that there was a depth of, of sharing and feeling of connection. And you're talking about that too, Amy, that when you slow down, you feel connected with what's going on rather than disconnected. So our heart's desire, when we talked about how to take care of the heart, the heart's longing, because we keep trying to take care of it with food or something else, and it doesn't work. Our fundamental desire is to have the heart of its end, right? The suffering end. The distress in our being end. And we find that when we connect, whether we connect with our food, whether we connect with the leaves on the trees outside when we go and watch them, or a little bird hopping around, or a chipmunk running around, or sit and watch a stone for an hour and feel that invisible protective field between us and the stone or the chipmunk or the flower or the food or the other person dissolves. To the extent to which that dissolving occurs, we begin to feel satisfied. We begin to feel at ease and content. And yet, it is the thing we fear the most. To dissolve. To dissolve those boundaries because we've carefully constructed them over the years. To protect ourselves against being wounded, being buffeted about, being bullied, and so on. Being abused, and so on. So we have this atrocious avoidance, not only to food, but to everything that involves intimacy. Food is just one example. We desire intimacy. That's the heart's deepest longing. We desire intimacy, not just with other people, but with everything. And yet we fear it. Because it means dissolving this person we have so carefully put together, letting parts of that person fail. So then we decide, well, well, I'll find someone else who will do that for me. 
someone who has just known me with the depth of my being and soul mate, and they'll, they'll love me no matter what. But as Janet said, nobody else can do that because people are impermanent. They change. They die. They go away. They fall in love with somebody else. They think of old things and, and, re, and experience things differently than we do. So there's always this grating of, oh, he doesn't understand me. He doesn't really get me. So no other person can do it. They can support us. They can love us as we grow on our own attributes and things. But we absolutely have to have community. We can't do it alone. So then there's the dilemma of I have to do it my, on my own, but I have to have community. But community means intimacy and connection. And that's crucial because people are people and they're complicated. So we talk always about the middle path in Buddhism, walking the middle path between alone and connection, always alone and connected, but always needing to be connected. The middle way between I must be and I'd like to enjoy while being and desire that takes us takes us to connection. And creates connection. Meditation practice is fundamental to all of this. What we call meditation practice, you could call it centering prayer, you could call it whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter. Meditation practice offers the opportunity for intimacy with anything. Anything. With your true self. Everything, even things that we might judge or find irritating. So when we're sitting, you know, we've been sitting for a while, we let down parts of the invisible protective field, then the sounds of cars passing by on the road or the person next to us just being nervously isn't irritating anymore, isn't attractive or irritating just what it is, and there's a certain beauty in it being just what it is. Or when we eat food that we don't ordinarily like, this didn't happen this time that I know of, but many people discover during the mindful eating workshop, they'll say, oh, I've always loved this food, but when I actually ate it mindfully, I discovered I don't really like it. Or the opposite, I've always hated such and such a thing, but there it was in my bowl, so I felt I should eat it, and I discovered that tastes pretty good. So when we're really present, we make all these interesting discoveries about what's really true for us. Not what we've always assumed had been true. So when we're really present and intimate, then food we don't ordinarily like becomes just the least interesting, the least a source of investigation and discovery. And even pain in our body can become pain helps lead us another step down the path. As that invisible protective field itself dissolves, then all our reactivity also dissolves. All of our judgments dissolve. All of our self-criticism dissolves. And we find ourselves at ease and content. And a world that says, man, you guys are crazy. Doesn't it rile you up that the election didn't go the way you wanted it to go? What's the matter with you? No, it just didn't go the way I wanted it to go. And somehow, you know, 
We don't always get what we want because we know other people are going to judge us. That's just the way it is. Maybe we're crazy. But when we can enter that realm of no pushing away and no pulling in, when we can align ourselves with the flow of our life, with the flow of our vibration, we find a clarity of mind, a settled mind that clears itself. We find a natural warmth in our hearts, a connectedness that's already there. We don't have to create it that enable us to return to the world renewed after our suffering, to return to the world renewed and better able to know what to do and what not to do, to help ourselves and to help other people. So I asked a question, which I'll leave you with. I asked a question during the workshop. What if enlightenment is continuous intimacy with everyone? with everything. For example, what if the touch of the clothing on your body, all of those hundreds of thousands of little touches when you become intimate with them are held as forever? That you are continually being loved and caressed by your beloved. Now expand that to all other aspects of your life. Continuous intimacy with unpleasant of enlightenment is continuous intimacy with everything. Are we willing?